takes a lot of, lot of hands to, to just keep our church gathering and rolling and, and provided for and protected and informed and all of it. So thank you all so much. Uh, we're in um, Matthew's gospel. We're in chapter 17. If you're following along, chapter 17, verses 14 through 23 this morning. I may or may not get to the last two, but I will definitely get to them uh, next week as well. It's kind of a hinge. That verses 22 and 23 are kind of a hinge passage. Um, no, Siri, I'm not talking to you. Stop. Yeah, 22 and 23 are kind of a hinge passage that, uh, that we can take on the, on the back end this week or on the front end next week. So depending on how we do, we'll see. Uh, Matthew chapter 17, if there are black Bibles around the room, grab those, um, open them up. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. I want to pray for us, and then let's get into this text this morning. Father, thanks for your kindness to us. Eight years, uh, we have not uh, gotten to this place in our church life together because we're awesome or because we have resources, but because you've called us to yourself and you are the one who resources us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being king and for calling us to yourself and for doing the work of atoning for our sins and justifying us. Thank you that you are the one who was raised from the dead and that your resurrection is promised to every single one of us who trust you and believe you in faith. Holy Spirit, thank you for filling us and dwelling within us and pushing us out to, to do good work and to come with the good news of Jesus to the people who are around us in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families wherever we find ourselves, our spheres of influence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless you, and we thank you, and we look to you, and we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, um, so after, uh, after if, you're, if you're new with us this morning, um, I, my wife, uh, all of life gave my wife and family and I a sabbatical this last summer, so we had an opportunity to take about 90 days of unbroken time together as a family to, to rest and to recalibrate and then to focus on uh, how we would re-enter. And this is uh, my second weekend I'm back, uh, my second week back um, in the life of our church. And after being on this sabbatical and slowing my pace of life and limiting the things that I bear responsibility among us to lead, uh, it's eye-opening and it's been very eye-opening for me to see and also to feel just how much happens in the life of a church family like ours. Just a couple hundred people, there is so much varied experience. Uh, some things are stable relationally and circumstantially. Some things are going very well. Other things are vulnerable. Relationships are vul vulnerable. Some are volatile. Some are fragile. This week, I've encountered no less than four major challenges to myself personally and circumstantially, uh, and each of which uh, kind of hits on a different aspect of my own life and my own leadership. And these challenges have functionally tested where I place my confidence. Where am I looking to work through this, to move through this, to find the wisdom that I need to navigate? 
Do I trust God with these things or is my posture that I'm wringing my hands and rushing forward into managing these outcomes? That's really the choice before me as I'm experiencing challenges. And so I've been asking this question, what does it look like for me to functionally give God my trust, to give him my trust, to give him my allegiance, to give him my submission when things don't necessarily go how I maybe wanted them to or had even thought that they would. And for everyone in this room, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, but particularly like a year, so you've been able to see some of the, like the patterns of your life develop, you experience the same things. You start to recognize this pattern that there's a very, very, very thin line between confidence in God and confidence in yourself. And sometimes you don't know when you transition from one to the other. In my role, it's, it's tricky as well because like, I, uh, I can easily use language and I can easily um, kind of notice my own posture as I show up with you. And so, so I could be like completely operating in the flesh and yet like putting on a bit of a, an air of like maturity or wisdom or whatever else, all the while I'm standing there in front of you, leaning on my own experience, leaning on my own skill sets, leaning on my own gifts, my own words, my own strengths. And I think all of us kind of learn at times how to, how to navigate and how to, um, how to show up not necessarily authentically ourselves. When you become a follower, when any of us become a follower of Jesus, there's this major clash of wills that occurs. Uh, because to truly follow Jesus means for you and I that we submit our will and that we submit our way to him. That's what it means to follow Jesus. The, Jesus of Nazareth has no equals and Jesus of Nazareth has no true rivals. From our childhood, so much of who we are has actually been governed by uh, what we want. We start to lean in more and more as we age to making our own decisions and sort of uh, being the, the, the captains of our own destiny. Maybe if you're a kid uh, living in the home, you cannot wait to get out from under your parents so that you can finally do things your way and, ch and finally choose your own path. But what we begin to recognize when we come to Jesus, we then have to lay down that will. We have to lay down our will before him. That is absolutely bottom line, numero uno, what is required to be a follower of Jesus is a willingness to lay down our own wills. It's also what it means to be uh, submitted as a church, not just individuals submitted to the Lord Jesus, but a group of individuals submitted to Jesus we as a church community have to be willing to, to lay down our will before the Lord Jesus too. So the, the, the road ahead for us is challenging and the decisions before us are daily to keep our wills submitted to Jesus's lordship. And what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 17 is a dynamic like this in play. Let's read the passage, Matthew 17 verses 14 through 23. And when they came to the crowd, so Jesus and Peter and James and John, three of his disciples, they had been up on this mountain. They'd had this extraordinary experience where they saw Jesus 
in glory. They saw him, it's called transfigured, transformed before them. His glory was evident. His power and majesty were evident before them. And now these four, Jesus and the three guys, they come down this mountain, verse 14, and they come into a crowd. And a man came up to Jesus and kneeling before Jesus said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire, and often he falls into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples, they came to Jesus privately, and they said, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. You'll notice in your Bibles, you may have a footnote. Some manuscripts add a verse 21 that says this kind or this kind of spirit or this kind of demon never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Some, about half of the ancient manuscripts that we have of Matthew include this verse, and about half of them do not include this verse. Mark's gospel absolutely includes this verse, and it's likely the earliest source of the gospels that we have. So it's completely fair to, to add that in. What we're seeing here in God's word is Jesus' mercy and his healing power, but we're also seeing something else. We're seeing his frustration, and we're seeing his public rebuke of his disciples. And, and what I think this text wants us to see, the lesson that this text wants us to see, is a bit of a warning for us not to trade our confidence in God for confidence in ourselves. I think that's the big idea where we're going this morning. Let's check as a church, as individuals, as disciples, our tendency to drift from confidence in Jesus to confidence in ourselves. And let's try to stop this drift through dependence, particularly through dependent prayer. A church birthday is a great reminder of this because we did not get here because we're awesome. We did not get here because of our resources. God has been kind and gracious to us. First, uh, let's look at how people in great need come to the author of mercy. People in great need come to the author of mercy. Verses 14 through 18. This, this dad of this young boy, he did not have strength in himself, and he knew it, and so he sought strength outside of himself to heal his boy and to make his boy better. This dad's words, he suffers terribly. This father, he knows um, where to go to find help for his son. Jesus and these disciples, they come down this mountain from this, like I was saying earlier, this exhilarating and transforming experience. They come down the mountain and they come down into a bit of a scene. If you've ever spent any time in the wilderness or any time in solitude, you know that it can be jarring to, go f to come from the mountains and a significant amount of time in them into the city and into traffic and into crowds. And that's exactly what happens. They've been together up on this mountain, likely not eating, so probably fasting. They've been praying together, Luke's gospel tells us that, and they come down into this crowd, and this crowd is clamoring before Jesus and these disciples for attention. 
And this dad comes right in front of Jesus and he falls down. He gets on his knees before Jesus. He says to him specifically, Lord, please have mercy on my son. He's pleading for help. Look at verse 14. Look at 15. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. Often, my boy, he falls into the fire and often into the water. Think about their day and age. They're cooking over open fires. They're hauling water or drawing from wells or at the Sea of Galilee. And I brought him, my son, to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, well, faithless and twisted generation, how long? How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring, Bring the boy to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. His father, he knows where to go to find help for his son. He's coming to the author of mercy. He's looking for mercy, and he actually finds it. That'll preach. Clearly, this guy has heard of Jesus. He's heard of everything that Jesus has been doing around Galilee. Galilee, uh, um, Rather, Jesus is, he's causing a bit of a scene wherever he goes through his miraculous works, these signs, these wonders, these healings that he's doing. And word, you know how quickly word of mouth spreads. In that day, there is no tech. It's just one person to the next. It's spreading. Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? And people, crowds are clamoring to find Jesus and to come to him. Matthew gives us a summary, actually, in chapter 15 of all that was going on. It'll be on the screen. This is what Matthew 15 30 and 31 says, great crowds came to Jesus, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And these friends of these people who had disabilities and disorders, they put these people at Jesus's feet and Jesus healed them. He had mercy on them. And the effect of it was the crowd was in wonder. So the crowd wondered at this when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing. And what was the result? They glorified the God of Israel. I've been kind of looking at this passage this week with a bit of an imagination. I think it's good to read the Gospels with our sanctified imaginations going. We're trying to like see the scene and smell the smells and and, and, and understand, like, to the best of our ability, what's going on. And as I've been thinking about it, I've been wondering, you know, maybe this dad, we don't know, the text doesn't actually tell us, but I wonder if he missed Jesus. Like, maybe he's out of town on business or something. Maybe he couldn't get to Jesus. Maybe the crowd was so thick that he's trying, and his boy is sick, and maybe he couldn't even leave the home. Maybe they couldn't even get the boy out of the house at that time. Maybe, maybe he was racked with unbelief. And he just didn't really think that there was much that this healer could do. Or maybe he was doubting uh, that Jesus was really a healer. Maybe his wife is the one who pushed him out of the house. Like, get our boy to this healer. This is the very guy who, there's a parallel account of this in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel. This is the very guy who in Luke's gospel cries out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. This is that story. This is that account both Mark and Luke and their parallel accounts, I think it's Mark 9 and Luke 9, they give, uh, they give quite a few more details. They really fill in the scene. The very last quote of the morning this morning, uh, I'll talk, a, it'll allude to that a little bit, but they give us the details. But Matthew, he seems to be pretty concise about this whole thing. And I think that 
I don't know why Matthew has such an economy of words here, but I think it has the effect of actually peeling away everything so that we can better see the main point. So that we're not in the weeds of the details, but Matthew is making his point very sharp here. And what we see is that this man who brings his boy to Jesus, he, he, he makes this case before Jesus. He's an epileptic. He falls into the fire. He falls into the water. And so in this detail, in this description, we see that there's also a, there's a medical diagnosis here. He's having epileptic seizures. Epilepsy is a neurological disorder. But this dad, he knows that there's something else in play too. There's a thing under the thing. Both Mark and Luke's gospels say that this guy led with the spirit throws him to the ground and exploits this disorder in him. In Matthew, we aren't given that detail actually until Jesus casts the spirit out, until he confronts it and casts it out and therefore heals the boy of two things, both his possession and his neurological disorder. He was fully healed from that very hour. We learn that this dad had already sought help from Jesus. He, he brought the boy to Jesus' disciples, probably looking for Jesus, but the disciples raised a hand and said, hey, he's given us some power to do these things. Let's see if we could help. They thought they could help. And in fact, like, why wouldn't they? Because Jesus had already given them all of his authority to heal all kinds of people and to cast out demons. The, in the list of the authority that Jesus has given them, there's, there's even raised the dead in there. Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 8, it'll be on the screen. Jesus sends these 12 disciples out with this instruction. He says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and, he, and enter no town among the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So go only to the Hebrews. And as you go to the Hebrew people, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he gives them this description. He says to them, he says, he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying. You've been given a ton of grace. Give grace, give without pay. And so these disciples, they should have been able to heal this boy according to Jesus's will, but surprise, they can't do it. They are incapable of doing this. And Jesus has something legitimate to say to them in verse 17. And he's saying this publicly among the crowd here. He's saying this, the disciples are there. They're experiencing public failure in the moment. And Jesus is going, oh, faithless generation. So this word faithless, it means literally, it means unbelieving. It means without faith. He's talking widely. He's painting with a very broad brush at this point. And he says, and twisted. That word means, um, that word means deformed rather than like in our day and age, we use the word twisted to mean it was something sinister or evil. He just means that it's, your, your faith is deformed, it's twisted. So what is in view here in this rebuke? Faithless and twisted generation is poverty of faith. It's poverty of faith. He says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy here. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Now, as I read this, uh, we know as we read the Gospels, sometimes Jesus' words and actions and even like attitudes on the page, they seem a bit cold. 
I don't know if you read this like this, but, but uh, it seems a bit like he is frustrated, maybe short-tempered here. It's like, hey, Jesus, we did our best. Like, we're trying. We're, 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 we're working with what we've got. I don't know if anybody else reads the text like that at all, but Jesus is rebuking these disciples and their failure. He's rebuking them publicly, and, and, and that stings. You know, if you've ever had a coach or you've ever had a boss or you've ever had somebody in authority over you rebuke you in public, you know that you don't quickly get over that. Some of us have coaches all the way back into high school and teachers all the way back into grade school that they publicly rebuked us, and we still play those words over and over in our minds. They follow us closely. wonder how you handled that. It's not a fun experience at all to be publicly rebuked. These guys, no doubt, they are feeling like failures, and they're feeling embarrassed, and they're feeling ashamed. But I don't want us to miss the grace here in the rebuke. There's grace in this rebuke. I don't know if you, if you saw it initially, but Jesus is here with them. There's grace in this rebuke. He's bearing with them. He is not moving on to find some other more competent disciples, which is kind of where I go at times when I fail. It's like you would be way better off with them or them or them, them. Jesus is frustrated for sure, but he's not sinning against them. He's promised them and he will promise them that he's never going to leave them and he's never going to forsake them. He's not going to get some more competent disciples. You and I are Jesus's plan for this day and age, not someone else, not somebody else. Martin Luther, he was for the 1500s. Calvin, he was for the 1600s. Billy Graham, he was for the 1900s. You and I are for the 2023s and the 2024s and beyond. I see this multi-layered, inspiring, and definitely intimidating side of Jesus in this passage and, and how he relates to the real world around him. Uh, and the effect that it has on me as I see this is it makes me respect him and love him and look up to him even more. Gladly willing to submit. Jesus is, he's compassionate with the dad. He's merciful to the son in healing him. He's powerful and authoritative over the, the demons in this realm of darkness and disease. And he's also truthful and consistent and corrective with his disciples. So in such a short account here, there's a ton going on. Now, that's the story. That's what's happening here. Now, here's the lesson, or at least one of them. I want you to look at verses 19 through 21. So Jesus rebukes them publicly, and then these disciples, they come to Jesus privately. And they're like, hey, Jesus, why could we not do it? They know in their minds that, that he has given them authority. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, that is a tiny seed in the ancient world, you will say it's tiny now too. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. I think it's important for us to know right out of the gates that moving mountains is an ancient metaphor for doing what seems impossible or doing what seems insurmountable. This is not literal. He's not saying, hey, if you guys just have a little bit more faith, 
just this big, you can say to Canfield, hey, swap with Rathdrum Mountain, or Rathdrum Mountain, swap with Signal Point. That's not what Jesus is saying here. I'll get to it in a moment. In verse 17, Jesus, he, he calls kind of, he's like this widespread rebuke. He's saying faithless, which means unbelieving. But now in this private conversation with his disciples, he's saying that they can't cast it out because of their little faith. So the question I'm asking, and I think the question we need to be asking of this text is, which one is it? Is, is it no faith? Is it tiny faith? Is it defective faith? What is it? Here's, what, here's why I, I don't think that Jesus is talking about the size of the disciples' faith or saying that they have no faith at all. If, if we're talking about the size of their faith, it doesn't make sense in the context because Right away, he says, if they've got really, really, really tiny mustard seed-sized faith, you can do my will even when it's impossible. And surely these disciples do have faith. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah a few paragraphs earlier. I don't think that Jesus is talking about the size of their faith. Instead, based on the context, I think that Jesus is talking about where their faith is aimed. Way, where they are placing their faith, who their faith is in. How do I come to that conclusion? Because in the text, they're not praying and pleading with God to do his will through them, to do what seems impossible, but rather they're likely trusting in their own ability, drawing on their own resources. This kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. You do not have the resources in yourself. Your confidence is not in God, but it has transferred to yourself. Like I said earlier, anybody who's followed Jesus for more than a year and who is honest, I think, begins to see a pattern in our lives that there is a very thin line between confidence in God and confidence in Jesus and confidence in ourselves. There's this thin line between trust and confidence in the giver and trust and confidence in the gifts that he's given to us. There's a thin line between trusting in our experiences, our skill sets, and all of that. How easy and subtle is it for us to begin our day as Christians and end our day as atheists? To begin our day with our confidence in God and to end our day with confidence in ourselves? Or if you're like me, and I'm not, this is not, like, I'm being very transparent with you, uh, for that cycle to happen multiple times over the course of the day. We trust our gifts, we trust our intuition, we trust our reason, we trust our resources, we trust our body of experience, we trust our skill sets. Um, this would even go on in uh, second and third generation disciples. It's going on for us, it was going on for these disciples in this public rebuke. It's gonna go on to the Galatians too because the apostle Paul, these second and third generation disciples, he's gonna rebuke them and give them the what for for the very same thing. In Galatians 3.3, he says, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the spirit or by the Holy Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? exactly what we're talking about here. I feel like I am these disciples most days. And often I don't even see the ways that I trust in myself. I don't even see the ways that I trust in my on-the-job experience. I live in submission to my flesh very often rather than submitted to King Jesus. And I think it's probably true for you as well. See, what these disciples were up against was dependent 
on the power of God to overcome. No human being gets in a match with evil spirits and overcomes those spirits by their own human effort or by drawing on their own resources or their own skill sets, their own power. The power of God is required to overcome the kingdom of darkness. The power of God is required to renew and to transform our hearts and our affections. The power of God is required to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to heal the lame in Jesus' name. It's Jesus' name. That is where the power is. The power of God is required to bring salvation. The disciples are sent out in chapter 10 and they rely on Jesus's power. They're in, they're, they're like, uh, they're, 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 they're going out among these different uh, tribes and villages and they are like, they, they are seeing things happen as they're declaring the kingdom and going out with the power of Jesus and they're in over their heads and they completely know it and Jesus sends them two by two not alone but he sends them with each other so that they can rely on each other and reassure each other and pray for each other and persevere with each other and they come back to Jesus rejoicing that you're never going to believe what happened. You're never going to believe who we healed. You're never going to believe the things that we cast out and the power that we had. And Jesus is like, hey, I know that stuff is all really cool, but don't place your rejoicing there. Place your rejoicing in the fact that your names are written in heaven. And so even in that moment, he is correcting this tendency for them to be all about the gift rather than what they have received and the giver. There's nothing like being overwhelmed with your powerlessness to help you rely on the power of God. There is nothing like it. I remember the first sermon I preached. It was in 2013, not that long ago. It was Acts 2, 42 through 47. I remember being in Coeur d'Alene, driving in my car on government way in front of the fairgrounds. And I remember literally looking at the other cars who were driving around me and being like, you don't have to preach tomorrow. You don't have to preach tomorrow. You don't have to preach tomorrow. I was shaking in my boots. I was so anxious, racked with anxiousness. The weight of like standing with God's word in front of a group of people is uh, it, it, it's incredible if you've done it, if you've experienced that. And I remember it was at Lakeside. It was, you might've been there, Todd. Um, like, I'm sorry for that. You've bared with me over the years. Thank you. Um, I, I just, I remember, like, I remember that anxiousness, like springboarding me into dependent prayer. I had nowhere else to go but relying on Jesus' strength. Fast forward a few years, I preached my first sermon at All of Life in September of 2015 to like 10 people, and I was anxious beyond belief. Nowhere to go with my anxiety but prayer. My weakness drove me to dependence. My weakness drove me to reliance. And then I started preaching every week. And pretty soon, I'm not praying as much as I'm writing sermons because I'm drawing on my resources, I'm drawing on my knowledge, I'm drawing on my experiences. And pretty soon I'm not praying as much as I'm sitting in a room with hurting people. And pretty soon I'm not praying as much as I'm doing ministry. I've drifted from confidence in God to confidence in self. And what I'm learning through this text and what I'm learning through um, as I'm re-entering my role here as lead pastor, is just how dependent I really am on God. 
just how much dependence I must have and live from rather than independence. It's a dependence. Just how impossible I'm learning, uh, just how impossible it is to really do the will of God without the power of God. I'm jealous for you to see that the same is true in our everyday lives, in our relationships, in our parenting, as kids, in our roommate situations, in our school situations, wherever we find ourselves. I'm jealous for you that you would see that the same is true for you. If anyone abides in Jesus, he will bear much fruit. But Jesus says, apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. However, there is nothing that God has called or commanded you or I to do in his will, in his, in his word, that will be impossible for us if we are dependent upon him for his strength and for the outcomes. There is nothing that he has called or commanded us to do in his word that we cannot do if we are dependent upon him for his strength and for the outcomes. If I am dependent on him to control the outcomes according to his will, then I can let go of the outcomes and I can know that he is covering them and I can find rest. Even in the midst of tension, even in the midst of stress, even in the midst of helplessness and powerlessness and not knowing what to do. Uh, we'll close here in just a moment. But one thing that this text is not saying, I want us to hear this loud and clear. It's not saying that God is a genie in a bottle. This text is not saying, hey, if you just trust Jesus and have more faith, then you're going to be able to control the future, right? Or control the weather or heal yourself of cancer or bring back the dead. One thing that Jesus does mean is that everything that he has commanded or instructed you or I to do will be possible for you and I as we rely on him. What he has commanded us to do is most clearly seen in his word, in the scriptures. So a question, is there a functional test for us to, to, to ask or to, to consider that reveals how you and I know that we are relying on him? I think there's one indicator, one assessment. It's our life of prayer. It's our prayer lives. Don't hang your head here. We all suck at it. Pick your head up. Stop looking at self and your own dependence. Lord, help me to pray. Help me. To, this is the disciples' prayer when Jesus gave them the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, teach us to pray. Jesus, teach us to pray. But I suck at it. No? I, yes? Jesus, teach me to pray. Help me to pray. It's a lifestyle of prayer. It's a lifestyle of fasting, which is a way to, 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 um, to leverage our dependence further and closer to, to being on God. These uh, nine disciples, they're unable to heal this boy while, while Jesus and Peter and James and John are on this mountain. Why? Because they were working independently. They were not praying and fasting and pleading with God in faith to do only what he can. They had drifted from confidence in God to confidence in self. 
Here is the last statement this morning. It's a quote. It'll be up on the screen. It's by Dale Bruner, and it's, it's really good. I alluded to it at the beginning when I said that Matthew, that, that Mark and Luke also have some other accounts, and we should, if all of the info that we're looking for is not in one gospel account, we should go looking for other gospel accounts. Here's what Bruner says. A good rule in gospel interpretation is this. When at first you don't succeed, try another gospel. If one gospel isn't clear, or I would add it doesn't have all that you're looking for, see if another gospel, gospel heard the incident differently. And sure enough, Mark heard Jesus respond to the disciples' question like this. This kind of spirit can only come out through prayer. That's Mark 9.29. Mark, who is usually more practical than systematic Matthew, heard Jesus say the solution is prayer. Matthew heard Jesus say, that it is faith. Is there any difference? Not much, for prayer is simply faith breathing. It's coming to God with our need, coming to him with our confidence rather than placing it in self. He ends by saying, faith and prayer are also united by the fact that neither trusts in its own competence. Both faith and prayer are characterized by an openness toward God. So, on our eighth birthday, going forward with as many years as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will give us, let's check, let's be vigilant to check our tendency to drift from confidence in ourselves, our confidence in Jesus, that drift then from Him, confidence in Him, to confidence in ourselves. And by God's grace and through dependent prayer, let's lean in hard together as a family committed to Him and committed to one another to stop this drift. Pray with me. Father, we, uh, we depend on you in this moment to help all of us in our collective stories stop this drift from confidence in you back to confidence in ourselves. Jesus, one of the first requirements of joining you in your kingdom is if anyone would deny himself or herself and follow take up our crosses and follow you, then we can be your disciples. Submission and surrender to you and to your will above our own, Lord Jesus, is what's required. So please, Father, through the spirit that you have given us who lives in us and dwells with us, enable our faith. Where it is defective, correct and heal it. Strengthen it through dependence in your word and dependence on you. In Jesus' name. We all pray, amen.